Hey, my brothers and sisters at Fellowship Oshawa, I am so looking forward to the fact that there's only one more week of this and then we'll be able to gather together again. Looking forward to that. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 12 and the topic that we're going to be looking at is the Sabbath, its meaning and purpose. Now Matthew 12 marks a significant shift in Jesus' earthly ministry. Up till now, he has been the king presented and attested but from this point on, we will see clearly the king blasphemed and rejected, and ultimately put to death on a cross. But Jesus doesn't back down. He is not afraid to confront and correct the religious elite who strive to peddle a counterfeit religion as God's word, and expect to continue to do so unchallenged. Today, we're going to see exactly that. Have you ever been to an all-inclusive resort? You arrive weary from all the tasks you had to complete at work before you could enjoy this holiday, all the preparations you had to make to get ready for it, and the traveling itself to get there. As you drive up to the resort, you catch glimpses of its beauty, and you can't wait to get through registration so you can finally go and enjoy it. Why do we love an all-inclusive resort? It is a scheduled, planned-for, worked-towards place of rest. You don't make beds or clean the room. You don't prepare meals or wash the dishes. You don't have to buy or fix or clean or maintain the furniture. Want a snack? Go get one. Thirsty? Ask the person in the hut by the pool for your favorite drink. The bill has already been paid. You can do this whenever you want, as often as you want. You don't lift a finger. You have worked hard to get here, and there will be a time when you will go back to your work. But this time, this time is set aside to rest. Rest. What does that mean to you? As you walk around the resort, you will see a variety of definitions of rest. There, by the pool or the ocean, you see a large number of people sunbathing and reading books, maybe doing crosswords or chatting with someone beside them. In the ocean... People are swimming, kids are playing in the waves, or on the sandy beach. A group of individuals are playing beach volleyball. A father and his young son snorkel by the reef. A family goes on a catamaran ride. This vacation, this rest, is a time set aside to cease from working to earn your living, to put aside the demands of your busy job, and even to go and enjoy the fruits of your hard labor. You are free to sit or sleep when you want, play when you want, eat when you want, and enjoy time with your loved ones. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Work and rest. God instituted a pattern of work and of rest in the book of Genesis, in the account of the original creation. As a good God, he gave us work as part of our instruction to be fruitful and to have authority over the earth. We were created to work to have dominion and responsibility, and to produce. Genesis 1.28 reads, And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in a familiar refrain, verse 31 reads, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, Jesus tells a parable of a man who goes on a trip and leaves his property in the care of his stewards. He gives them money, and upon his return, calls them to bring an account of what they've done with what he has entrusted to them. Now the first two bring the results of their labors with what he gave them. He praises both of them equally, even though they did not bring equal returns. The third, however, did nothing. He buried the money and returned to the man exactly what he had originally given, and he is harshly chastised. Good, responsible, fruitful work is praised. Laziness and selfishness is reprimanded. Work can be satisfying and fulfilling. But in the Genesis account, God also gave us a pattern of six days for working and the seventh day for resting. He modeled for us a balance between work and rest, both of which are designed for our good. Too much work is not good. Our physical health suffers, as do our relationships for lack of nurturing. Not enough work is also not good. Often our mental health suffers, and again, our relationships can suffer as a consequence. This pattern was established long before there ever existed a nation of Israel or a Mosaic covenant. And over it all, God created us to worship him. Our work can be a form of worship, but God also gave us in his model a day set aside to cease from labor and striving, a day to focus without distraction on worshiping him. We as a nation used to honor that. Most of you listening, however, are too young to remember that there was a time when stores were all closed on Sunday. Scripture teaches us that we have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who seeks to corrupt every good thing that God does. We see the consequences of his influence in today's passage. But before we do so, let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your kingdom, there is work and there is rest. It's how you designed it to be, for our good and your glory. In the original creation, you established the pattern and you declared it to be good. Open our eyes and hearts to see your original design and intent so that we may thrive in your kingdom and glorify you the way you deserve to be worshipped. Amen. Let's take a look at the incident that is described in Matthew chapter 12 and how Jesus recalibrates it by clarifying God's design and intent. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start reading at verse 1. Matthew 12. Verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, as we consider those first two verses, I want you to just Pause for a moment and think about what you believe is the problem. Why are the disciples getting in trouble? And this brings us to our first point in the message. I've entitled it, The Problem on the Sabbath, Not What You Think. With our North American perspectives, we tend to read these verses and assume that the problem is that God said you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath and the disciples were doing work quote-unquote, by gleaning grain. Now, it may seem a bit excessive to us, but 
from the outside looking in, excessive or particular is what we often think of when we think of the Jewish religion. In Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, God instructs Moses, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God clarifies that the Sabbath isn't just a day to stop working. It's also a day to focus on worshiping God. But we as humans tend to lean toward the negative in reading this. We hear as a, as a, sorry, we hear it as a rule from a strict God telling us the things we can't do, rather than a protective boundary put in place by a good and loving God guarding us from harm to ourselves through overwork. Psalm 103 verse 14 states, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows what we need better than we do. And right from the beginning, out of a heart of compassion and love, he structured the creation week to model a period of good and fruitful work, followed by a period of good and intentional rest. Here, in Exodus, God gives Moses clarification for the purpose of the Sabbath and what it is to mean and portray for the fledgling nation Israel. The journey through the wilderness on the way to the promised land was intended to break them of old habits and thought patterns and to institute new ones. They had, for 400 years, performed labor as slaves to the tyrannical slave masters of Egypt. Rest was almost non-existent. God needed to retrain them to understand his purpose for work, to know that rest could be a good and right and healthy thing, and to know that God had a design and purpose for both. But here's the thing. God never intended for the Sabbath to become a burden. He never intended for people to be unable to meet their daily needs, like hunger or herd care or whatever. That was a problem that the Pharisees created with their religious traditions. They hyper-analyzed each instruction, defining in minute detail what constituted work and what didn't. Do you remember our all-inclusive resort at the start of this sermon? Imagine now that you're heading back to your room and you pick up your beach towel to carry it back, when suddenly you're surrounded by resort staff, resort staff who begin to reprimand you for working when you should be resting. In your room, the kids have thrown their wet swim trunks on the bed. You pick them up to hang them in the bathroom when there's a knock at the door. A staff supervisor is standing there and begins with great disapproval to chastise you for working when you should be resting. You ask, what did I do? And he replies, why, the wet swim trunks, of course. Shocked, you respond, how do you even know that? Whereupon he points to the top corner of the room, informing you of the cameras installed to make sure you are resting 
and not working. And he then hands you a 75-page manual, which outlines all of the things you are forbidden to do in order to rest, and he instructs you that you are expected to follow them to the letter. Now, this is crazy. Would you feel rested at the end of that week? knowing that there are all these rules to abide by and eyes watching at all times? The Talmud, the book of Jewish religious tradition, contains 24 chapters dedicated just to Sabbath laws. 24 chapters. Certain laws decreed that you could only travel 3,000 feet from your home on the Sabbath. If you had placed some food within 3,000 feet of your home, you could go there to eat it. And then, since the food was considered an extension of your home, you could actually then travel 3,000 feet from the food. A Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath. But if an item weighed half of a dried fig, he could carry it twice. Tailors did not carry a needle on the Sabbath so that they wouldn't be tempted to mend something and thus perform work. Baths could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill on the floor and inadvertently wash it. Can you imagine the stress of not only constantly having to be on guard against accidentally breaking a Sabbath law, but, but also fearing who might be watching you and reporting you to the authorities for it? And this is precisely what the disciples encounter from the Jewish Pharisees. The Pharisees believe they are speaking as God's representatives when they criticize the disciples for eating because they are hungry. But the law that they are referring to is not God's law. It is their man-made traditions. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were allowances made for the very kind of thing that the, that the disciples had done. So Jesus sets them straight. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And this brings us to point two. The practice of the Sabbath. What God didn't condemn. The practice of the Sabbath. What God didn't condemn. In this passage, Jesus delivers a stinging rebuke to the so-called experts in the scriptures. First off, in verses 3 and 5, he asks, have you not read? Here he criticizes their self-proclaimed expertise. In effect, he asks, have you guys actually read the scriptures? Because I can't understand how you could have missed this if you had. And next, he highlights two examples, one that involves Israel's favorite hero king, and the other involves the priests, with whom everyone was familiar. So these are not obscure examples. They are accounts that 
everyone should be familiar with. In the first account, he reminds them of how David and his men entered the temple on the Sabbath and ate the twelve loaves of the bread of the presence. This bread was baked fresh and consecrated each Sabbath, and previous loaves were usually eaten by the priests only. But David and his men were on the run from Saul, and they were desperately hungry. Ahimelech, the priest, gave them the bread for the priests. He inquired of the Lord and received approval. Ahimelech recognized that his spiritual obligation to preserve David's life trumped the ceremonial regulation concerning who could eat the consecrated, uh, consecrated bread. And more than that, he got the okay from the Lord who instituted the Sabbath in the first place. And next, Jesus reminds the Pharisees that the priests must do their work on the Sabbath, and yet they are found guiltless. Some aspects of the Sabbath laws are not moral absolutes that must not be violated, but precepts that have to do with the ceremonial features of the law. In other words, Jesus is telling them, you've taken this much too far, way beyond what God ever intended. And then Jesus makes this stupendous statement, and something greater than the temple is here. In the eyes of the religious elite, nothing was greater than the temple where the people went to meet God. Nothing except God himself. So in saying that something greater than the temple was here was to say in so many words, God himself is here. I am God. God incarnate in person before them was far superior to a building that God only visited. He then exposes their hearts by saying, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Pharisees were so fixated on the ceremony that they disregarded relational matters like mercy and kindness. God, in his mercy, had instituted a pattern of rest, and they, through their tradition and exalting of ceremony, had turned it into something burdensome, something to be dreaded and feared. And then Jesus states his credentials, his right to overrule their years of tradition and set the record straight. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who do you think you are, Jesus, to criticize our time-honored traditions? I'll tell you who I am and what gives me the right to correct your errors. I am the Son of Man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And finally, Jesus takes things even a step further. Above clarifying what God didn't mean, he specifically declares what God did mean, and again makes an unequivocal declaration about himself. Let's read the last verses, starting in verse 9. Jesus uh, he, Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls... Uh, sorry, which, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? 
of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. As Jesus enters the synagogue, he passes a man with a withered hand. I wonder if this man even noticed Jesus. But the Pharisees noticed the man, and they used him as a pawn to trap Jesus. Everything about this account leads us to think that they actually fully anticipated that Jesus would heal the man. In fact, they wanted him to. His supernatural healing ability did not bring them to their knees in worship and awe. They wanted to use it against him. Again, they brought their tradition to bear. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They weren't referring to God's law. No such law existed in God's word that prevented healing. No, they were referring to their own, which they had elevated to a position higher than God's law. Jesus confronts them with their own hypocrisy. He asks them, which one of you, which has a sheep that falls into a pit, does not take hold of it and lift it out? Then he clearly defines God's heart in the matter of how much more value is a man than a sheep. He essentially accuses them, the shepherds of his people Israel, of caring more for a sheep than for his people. And again, he declares his right to define the rules. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he demonstrates his right to do so by healing with a word, something only God could do, something reminiscent of that first creation week. Despite all the evidence that very God is in their midst, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. You can't help but shake your head. Maybe you're asking one of two questions right now. Either, why didn't the Pharisees see who Jesus was? Or, why did Jesus continue to antagonize them so? I don't really intend to answer either of those questions. Instead, I want to pose one of my own. As a follower of Jesus, what do I take away from this account? What lesson does God want me to learn from all of this? And this brings us to point three, the purpose of the Sabbath, God's original intent. The purpose of the Sabbath, God's original intent. First off, I think it's important to acknowledge that the Ten Commandments were given as part of the Mosaic Covenant which was for the nation Israel, and as such, does not directly apply to us. And I say that carefully. That said, the moral laws given are timeless, and therefore we still have an obligation to obey them, though out of love for God rather than out of fear of him. But the commandment regarding the Sabbath is the only one that is ceremonial rather than moral. As such, Christians are not under any requirement to keep the Sabbath. There is no such instruction or command in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 tells us, however, that they were written down for our instruction. 
So let's learn from this opportunity to hear God actually speak about something that God instituted. So the first takeaway is that God established a pattern of work and rest for our good. God established a pattern of work and rest for our good. We humans contend one way or the other. We can lean towards too much resting, which is laziness, or toward too much working, which can indicate greed, obsession, or idolatry. It is good for us to work, and it is good for us to rest. Both are part of God's design. Interestingly, I was doing a little bit of uh, investigation, and Discover Magazine attributes the creation of a seven-day week to the Babylonians and suggests that the Jews adopted it after being in captivity there. I think it's far more likely that Daniel and his friends brought this influence to the Babylonians. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 states, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Proverbs 31 verse 27 praises the woman who looks well into the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Notice that nowhere in scripture does it suggest we wait for a dream job, a job that fulfills us. The culture tells us, find a job you're passionate about and you'll never work a day in your life. I'm going to tell you that's total nonsense, and it's not biblical. I loved being a teacher, for example, and lots of days were exhausting, draining, a grind. Work hard anyway, but make time to rest as well. <clears throat> Number two, God instructed his people to set aside time to worship together. God instructed his people to set aside time to worship together. The Sabbath as a day of worship, especially corporately, was also God's design. Now we need to always keep in mind that the Sabbath was intended for man's good, not as a rigid religious ritual. Jesus said in Mark 2 verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The New Testament church established a new pattern of meeting on the first day of the week. John 20, verse 19, indicates that the disciples were gathered together on the evening of the first day of the week. Why? Well, because it was a work day in the Jewish nation, so they gathered after work. But they were together for the purpose of worshiping. I think it's worth noting that we need to be careful not to make Sunday into Sabbath 2.0. When I was growing up, I had cousins who attended a church where you were not allowed to do anything but read on Sunday. No sports, games, or television, and certainly no work or hobbies even. Men wore suits and ties to church. Women wore dresses and black and white only, no colors. And you didn't change out of those dress clothes until the day was over. Now, our culture today rejects most forms of formality, so that's probably not a risk. But I'd like to caution each of us to prioritize gathering together for corporate worship. That means not only being there, but preparing ourselves, especially our hearts, to be there fully. Get everything ready the night before. Turn off the email and text notifications on your phone while at church. Spend that time with God beforehand. Sorry, spend time with God beforehand. Come physically, spiritually, and emotionally ready to worship. 
I understand that those with little ones may see this as almost impossible. Do what you can. There is grace here too, just as there is in every other aspect of life. If you are depleted, empty, ask God to give you what you need. Ask him to fill you, to give you rest, to restore to you the joy of your salvation. He is a good God, and he delights to give you what you need. Matthew 7 verse 11 asks, How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And thirdly, the Sabbath of old is a temporary symbol pointing forward to an eternal reality. The Sabbath of old is a temporary symbol pointing forward to an eternal reality. You may recall a few weeks back when I preached on the Lord's Supper and its roots in the Passover. We celebrate it temporarily until such time as there's no longer a need to remember the Lord and his death because he will be right there before us. This is true of the Sabbath as well. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author quotes 95 verse, uh, Psalm 95 verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now God was speaking about the people of Israel who had seen God's mighty arm rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and then continuously providing food and water for them throughout their wilderness journey. And still they did not believe and so God said they would not enter his rest. What did he mean by his rest? They would not enter the promised land, the place he had set aside for them, a place of blessing and provision, a place where they could cease from striving and enjoy the plentiful bounty from the hand of God. No more wandering. It would be a place of belonging. Brothers and sisters, this promise is true for us as followers of Jesus as well. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. Last week, Germain preached on Jesus' invitation for all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest. This rest that Jesus offers is not just for now, although it is for now, but it's also a promise of complete and perfect rest in a future day. The gospel reminds us that when we accept by faith Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf, the penalty of sin is removed from us because it has been paid by him. And his power in us now cancels the power of sin in our lives. And finally, one day we can stop striving against this sin nature in us. The battle will be over because he will remove the very presence of sin from us. And we can finally and fully rest. And we will then worship him in perfection, face to face. No distractions from without. No turmoil from within. Can you imagine this? That's our destiny, brothers and sisters. I am so looking forward to the rest. And I'm so looking forward to being in the very presence of the one who died for me and rose again. Aren't you? If you are listening today, and you have never taken that step of faith to come to Jesus, to confess your sin against him and your need of him as your savior, accept his offer of forgiveness and salvation and submit to him as your Lord. You risk missing out on all of this, the rest that he so freely offers. All your striving, all your attempts to be good and earn his favor are pointless and ineffectual. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reads, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, 
It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't earn your salvation. It's a free gift, but it can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ. And the time, the time is now. All the conditions are right for the king to return and take his people to enter his rest. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you knew how we are, and you knew we would need both work and rest. So you instituted that pattern right into the creation week. But neither work nor rest is sufficient if you are not in it. And so you also instilled a pattern for worship in that model. However, we rebelled against you, and our sin brought corruption and distortion to what was very good. And true rest was lost. So you left your rest your place in heaven with your Father, and you came to this earth to restore our rest. You came to remove the heavy burdens of guilt and sin and striving and shame and give us peace and hope and joy and rest in you. Lord Jesus, the enemy seeks to rob us of this. He tempts us to misuse every good gift you give. Please give us understanding to know your heart for us and help us to detect the lies of the enemy that will only drain us and drag us down. Help us to seek you and abide in you, to dwell in your rest until you come to take us to our eternal rest. And Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know that rest, compel them through your Holy Spirit to finally lay down their burden at the foot of your cross to stop their struggling and striving because you have already completed the work of salvation and to enter into the rest that you so freely and graciously offer them in your precious and magnificent name. Amen.